Hi, good morning, everyone, and welcome. This is Seek Sustainable Japan. I'm JJ Walsh in Hiroshima, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Douglas Brooks. Today you're in Kagawa, right, Douglas? That's right. Yes, yeah. last day here. Fly home last today.、Day. Thank you so much for joining. I'm so fascinated by all the great. A wooden boat building that you're doing, your history all throughout Japan.、Uh, you said you've been to all 47 prefectures. Is that right? That is correct. Oh my gosh! How many boats have you? How many boat projects have you been a part of over that time? Huh. So, so my work involves working alongside. My research involves working alongside traditional boat builders,、uh, essentially apprenticing.、Um, And building a boat together so I can document their design secrets and techniques. So I have done nine apprenticeships with Japanese boat builders, and all my teachers were in their seventies and eighties at the time I worked with them. And I'm the sole apprentice for seven of the nine teachers. And that geographically that spans、uh, from Aomori, the north end of the main island, to Okinawa. That's amazing, and the work that you're doing, of course, is very connected to sustainability,、mm. um, because, like you said, so many of the boat builders, the craftspeople, are getting older, and they don't really have apprentices to、yeah. carry on in their traditions. And when I was researching and listening to your other interviews, it was just amazing to me that they don't write anything down. In fact, they're very secretive about their way of boat building. Is that right? That's correct, and you know, knowledge is power. And I, I don't think this is unique to Japan at all. I mean, I think craftspeople everywhere, you know, recognize if they have some sort of special skill, or they just need to protect what they know to help sustain their livelihood.、Uh, but in Japan, yeah, the secrecy is really embedded in the craft. And、um, I tell viewers that there's a very interesting phrase in Japanese. Quite well known,、uh, nusumi geko, which means stolen lessons. And should you have an opportunity to talk to a Japanese craftsperson, young or old,、uh, you should mention that that phrase because in many cases, apprentices were forced to steal their master's secrets. And in my case, in the case of my teachers, not all of them apprenticed with their fathers. And so, of course, if you apprenticed with your father. You were told everything, but if you didn't, you weren't taught everything, and the essential secrets of the craft were withheld from you. And it was up to the apprentice. It was sort of the final hurdle of the apprenticeship was to steal those secrets. And and some of my teachers had very very interesting stories to tell about what that was like for them. I I heard you tell one of those stories that、uh, one of the sensei, one of the masters, had actually、uh, written some false information in his studio for the apprentice to get to mixed、discover. up on purpose. Yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, I've heard and I've heard amazing stories myself. I've, in addition to working with nine boat builders, I've interviewed, I've met and interviewed. Well over fifty boat builders from throughout Japan, and it's one of my standard questions. And、uh, and I I can remember stories like their master when their master would lay down the lines of the boat or the dimensions of the boat, he would pull a sheet over him, you know. So all all kinds of things like that were done. It was it was a very interesting relationship ultimately between the master and the apprentice. 
Wow, that's amazing. And you you talk about uh, taking their notes uh, that they scribble down on pieces of wood as they do sometimes talk to you during the apprenticeship and then going and making copies. Uh, you, of course, you've written a book uh, detailing the size and dimensions, which wasn't really written down before. Right. Have, how have they received your telling of the secrets? Is it like a magician you know, telling secrets of the magic tricks and uh, giving that, but you're preserving it to future generations. Do they right. see that benefit of it? Yeah, I think I, I tell a lot of people that in looking back, I think my timing was perfect. You know, again, I met my teachers when they were quite old. And I know that for many of them, they had reached a point where they realized what was about to be lost. And so I, and, and they, you know, in one case, one of my teachers was a fourth generation boat builder and I was essentially their last chance. You know, I think if I had come into their workshops 20 years earlier, when they were in their fifties, I think they would have thrown me out. And in fact, a boat builder I met near you in Hiroshima said exactly that to me. I met him, he was in his mid eighties and 20 minutes into our conversation, he said, you know, if you'd come in here 10 years ago, I would have thrown you out. And then he, I was sort of shocked and he paused and said, but now it's time to document me. He literally said that. And, um, and I'm, I'm very sorry. I wasn't in a position to do that. Um, he was, he's a remarkable boat builder. Um, but I think, yeah, I think my timing had a lot to do with it. And so, yes, most of my teachers, completely recognized what I was trying to do, though they clung very strongly to the, the notion that apprentice training was the only way to access the craft. Seeing me as a kind of a classic documentarian, you know, while I was working alongside them as a bona fide boat builder, I had my camera and, and my notebook and my sketchbook and so on. They, they really discounted that. You know, they really didn't believe that the craft could be recorded in a book. And I don't fault them for that, you know, and I, and I, I don't presume for a moment that my books could ever replace what you could learn in a six-year apprenticeship. And that, that was the traditional apprenticeship. Um, I might I might just point out that for me, I call myself an apprentice. There's in Japanese, there was no other word to describe me but deshi. Uh, but I was with my teachers for the time it took to build one boat together. And in one case, two boats together. And so that ranged from just a few weeks to seven months. So um, but but traditionally, the, the, the apprenticeship was six years in boat building. Wow. Now, I really appreciate Asby Brown uh, introducing mm. us. And he, of course, a very similar strains, I think, to he did mm. an apprenticeship uh, with a temple building carpenter master and uh, wrote a book about it. Right. <clears throat> what a great is, book about it. Is that is how did you guys cross paths? Was it how did that's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I read his book, The Genius of Japanese Carpentry, many, many, many years ago. And I, I'm going to guess I reached out to him. I'm pretty good about that. <laughs> I'm pretty good about sending cold emails. But Asby is a wonderful, wonderful guy and an incredibly talented. I'm, I mean, uh, he should not be typecast as simply 
architect and student of Japanese temple carpentry. He's just just amazing the 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 social work he does and the artistic work he does. It's really quite incredible. So, yeah, but he I, has remained a he's remained a a real supporter of my work and uh and, and just a, a a good friend. Yeah, awesome. And I was just in Fukushima with him and mm. you you did one of your projects in Fukushima. Uh, let's just uh, stand back a little bit and look at this map of all the areas of Japan that you've done projects. Yeah. Can you just tell us a little bit? About yeah, it? so on that map, um, uh, that shows the location of my apprenticeships and also major projects. So in addition to building boats with masters, um, I've done several boat building projects as exhibitions at Japanese museums and uh, arts festivals. And so those are also shown on the map. Um, I, I built a boat in Iwate, not Fukushima, but in Iwate. And that, that had special significance because it was after the tsunami. And I worked with really the last boat builder active on that coastline that was destroyed by the tsunami. And we built the most common wooden boat of that region, um, which I felt, you know, spoke to the cultural loss, the, the loss of material culture uh, as a result of that disaster. And you mentioned about the Seto Inland Sea area. Yes. Um, which you're in Kagawa right now. Right. I'm here right now. Yeah. And you, you said there's special significance about this area. Is that right? Well, there's a great deal of interest for me. Uh, the only boat I built, I've built in this region is at the Setouchi Arts Festival in 2014. Yeah, I think it was 2014 in Takamatsu City. I built a replica of a small fishing boat from the island of Naoshima. Um, if anyone knows the Inland Sea, Naoshima is quite famous for the art installations and art museums that are on the island. And I had uh, originally interviewed the last boat builder on Naoshima. And we were, I tried to set this up in the festival as another apprenticeship where I would work under him. But at the last, with just a few months to go, he became ill he couldn't work. And so I brought some apprentices in to help me and we built that boat. So that's my only direct boat building experience here in the Inland Sea. But I've had the opportunity to travel around this area. And, you know, it's a myriad of islands. It's an absolutely beautiful part of Japan. The islands are amazing. Each one has a different culture and character. Um, but there are still a few boat builders working in this region and um yeah i've i've met some of them um i'd love to chase down all of them um uh but you know that's always for me uh it's always a battle to find research funding and uh but i hope you know i hope to do that in fact last weekend i took a break from this project and my assistant justin and i spent the weekend on shodo island shodoshima which is right off right off the coast here. And uh, lo and behold, we found a pair of breathtakingly beautiful traditional wooden boats. And I'm, when I get back here in the fall to finish my contract, um, I'm looking forward to getting over there and at least measuring those boats and maybe finding, out, finding someone who knows more about what they are, how they were used, their history, and so on. So, so my work is kind of transitioning because the boat builders are disappearing they are passing away at this point and um you know in some ways 
I'm pivoting uh, and very interested in simply finding old boats and measuring them uh, and it, doing whatever I can to preserve the craft. Yeah, I was going to ask that if after all of these apprenticeships um, that you have a sense of how things are done, uh, you talk about the measurement system, the shaku, mm, yeah. and how that wasn't such a big transition for you going from the American right. measurement system that it made sense to you somehow. Mm. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So, so traditional craftspeople in Japan work using shaku. They don't use the metric system. And shaku is a decimal-based system. And for an American, and I guess an American only, uh, shaku is actually a really easy uh, system to get used to because one shaku is 11 and 15 sixteenths inches. So just slightly under a foot. Uh, though it's divided into 10 units and not 12 inches. Uh, but yeah, I'm very, very comfortable using Shaku. And uh, probably like most Americans, I, you know, I, I have a hard time. What's, what's 2.5 meters, you know, and thinking about those distances. But Shaku is an easy thing for me to visualize. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah, I feel like I've, I'm stuck between two worlds. I don't understand either, but I, <laughs> I, I hear them. I understand them. I don't know what they mean. But as a builder, very important to have precise measurements. Uh, just connecting back to Naoshima, wouldn't it be fabulous to have your students have a project, uh, take over one of the Akia abandoned mm. houses, which they do a lot on the smaller right. islands right. as a part of the art festa, the Triana Triano, yeah. and Triana, uh, yeah. have a boat at the end of the, the art fest or something. I'm sure there's connections between the art and craft world and that festival or other festivals, that would be really exciting to see a project. That would be, that would be great. I'll mention your name the next time I apply. <laughs> Yay, let's do yeah. it. I, I know a few people around the area who also uh, work or promote the Triano. So let's, yeah, well, let's my host on Shodoshima is, is an artist who's been featured in um, several of the maybe festivals. maybe Yayoi Kusuma could uh, design our boat with go. her famous polka dots or something. Right, right. <laughs> um, now, one of the really interesting projects, which I love miso. So mm. I have visited a lot of these traditional shops and they all lament how they do not have craftspeople who make these wooden barrels anymore. That's right. And you had the experience of going to an area where they make the barrels, not for miso specifically, but for as a boat and for tourism. That was amazing. Where is yeah, this? if you want to put, if you can put that, that uh, the previous photo, if you can go back one more. Yes, yeah, so that's uh, taken on Sato Island, which is part of Niigata Prefecture in the Sea of Japan. And those are taraibune, or literally tub boats. And this is actually the, my first apprenticeship was with the last uh, professional builder of these boats. And these are used for fishing. They're still used on Sato Island. They're traditionally used by women. Um, they're very, very interesting cultural story uh, and craft story. But it turns out that, uh, ironically, I, as I say, I went to Japan to become a boat builder and I became a barrel maker. So my first apprenticeship was essentially in traditional cooperage. That's my teacher. Um, and uh, this, it's also the subject of my first book. And what was interesting, um, in 2003, 
the Kodo Cultural Foundation. Uh, people may know Kodo, the, the famous taiko drumming group on Sato Island. They published my book on how to build tub boats. And that actually, uh, I became quite well known among Japan's barrel makers for that because no one had ever written how to build Japanese barrels. And you are absolutely right that that craft is really even rarer than boat building and really reached a crisis as just as sake brewers and others, um, well, really sake brewers turned back to brewing in wood in the early 2000s. And just at that time, the last barrel makers were, you know, retiring. And it, it has created a crisis. And there is also, I'm happy to report, a really, really interesting response to that crisis. A small group of younger barrel makers, really kind of the last, uh, the last group of craftspeople to go through traditional apprentices, apprenticeships, they have teamed up and um, they have these yearly workshops um, on Shodoshima, the island that I've mentioned right near here. And they stay and, uh, at a soy sauce maker, Yamaroku Shoyu, on Shodoshima, quite famous. And they, they invite young people from all over Japan. And for several weeks, they collectively build soy sauce barrels, which are about, about seven feet tall. So they're pretty monumental cooperage. Um, and this is a way to start training more and more people in this craft. And it's, it's a wonderful, I visited once, uh, it's a wonderful thing to see. And um, yeah, it, uh, just a wonderful effort. I mean, I wish, I wish they had more support um, and they could expand this, you know, but this is the kind of, you know, this is the kind of terrible question that has to be faced. How do we preserve the craft? So um, yeah. that's a that's a, a small, uh, happy story of what's going on. Yeah. And I know it's in high demand from mm. craftspeople all over. I yeah. went to Shikoku Island and people who make the bancha, the local uh, fermented tea, they mm. want these wooden barrels, uh, miso makers, shoyu makers, uh, even sake makers and, sure. and even craft brewers. Uh, who are making beer, they want the wooden barrels because they love the flavor profile that right. comes out from the wood. And they are rejecting, thank you, finally, they're rejecting the plastic tubs right. um, that have come into use because of convenience, right? Yeah. And going back to getting that that higher quality um, mm. product in the end. So yeah, I really hope to see more of this. Now, what you said was the most difficult part was the bamboo strap. Tell us about that. Yeah, so the bamboo hoops, uh, there are two. So if you look closely at one of the photos, yes, that's a great shot. That is a braided hoop. That's a, a hoop is called a taga, and that's called a kumi taga, meaning braided hoop. And that's made for the tub boat, which is about five feet in diameter. Um, that the, the raw material for that hoop is four strips of timber bamboo madake, only madake, uh, that are all each about 50 feet long. So you harvest a mature stock, stock of timber bamboo, split it four ways, then split each of those to get eight strips, and you use four of those to braid the hoop. 
And that is, that is a one of the most difficult things I've ever learned and probably without a doubt the rarest skill I possess because I don't think there could be more than I don't think there could be more than two dozen people left in Japan that know how to do that. Um, and I detail how to make a braided hoop in my first book. So, um, yeah, yeah, the kumitaga. And and the braided hoop is used on the largest barrels. It's considered stronger. And people who might see a small bucket someplace will notice that the bamboo hoop is simply twisted. And that's called karitaga. So uh, for large barrels, you use the braided hoop. Oh, when we look at these barrels, are these the braided ones? Yeah, that's that's those are the tub boats, and those use the braided hoops. Yes. Yeah, absolutely beautiful photos. Just such a clear water yeah. here. You can just see it's like Hawaii. You can just see right through to the bottom. How gorgeous! Right. And well, right. And when you look at the next photo of the man fishing, you see he's he's looking through a, a sight box, a a box, wooden box with a glass bottom. And when he sees the catch, which is either shellfish or seaweed, um, he reaches behind him and takes one of those specialty bamboo spears and reaches down and plucks the catch. And that kind of fishing exists throughout Japan. And, and of course, it depends on the clear water. And yeah. then but that um, kind of fishing is very common. And then the glass Japan. bottom for sightseers as well. And then, right? yes, my teacher was very proud of the fact that he made the first glass bottom tub boats and that that these are the sightseeing boats um on sato island at one I spot on, there are three places that you can ride a tub boat as a tourist and the traditional costumes that they're wearing the fact yeah. that there aren't any motors so that mm. it doesn't disturb the serenity of the natural area right um i love that Great, yeah, no, great it's a great, it's a great asset. thing. It's it's fun, really fun to do. If you go to Sato Island, you need to seek out one of the three tourist companies and go for a ride. Yeah. Oh man, I really yeah. want to go. Um, now, I last week I talked to an uh, Australian importer, a Japanese woman who started an import business of traditional crafts tools mm. uh, from Japan to Australian gardeners and landscapers. Mm. Now, you have used so many traditional, beautiful carpentry tools. Uh, what are we looking at here? Can you just give us an overview? Yeah, so the, actually those are the, the tools of my tubboat teacher, my first teacher. So on the right side are conventional uh, Japanese woodworking tools. Uh, there's one, the, the one tool, the one small chisel-like tool on the horizontal is uh, sp specific to boat building. Uh, the Japanese planes in the lower right corner, marking gauges in the upper right corner. But then the, the remaining tools in that photograph are really specific to barrel making. On the upper right corner, you see the, the curved patterns that all barrel makers use. And that's to, that's to check the um, angle on the edge of a stave as well as the inside and outside curvature of each stave, meaning each vertical plank in the barrel. And then to the far left, uh, those uh, those long narrow tools, those are the tools for weaving the braided bamboo hoop because it becomes so tight, you need to open the weave. And um, I believe that photo of my teacher braiding, you can see him that in his hand. And then, yeah, he's he inserts that into the braid and he can open the braid in other in order to tuck 
the bamboo material and keep braiding around the hoop. So yeah, those are those th those are essentially all the tools necessary to build a tub boat. That's right, amazing. Which you showed. Yeah. yeah, so interesting. And uh, like she was saying as well, her landscape gardener husband mm. uh, just raved about the cheapest of tools that he bought in Japan yeah. at the DIY center and how much better they were than the ones he had in Australia. Mm. Um, so tool making, of course, goes back to samurai times when they yes. transitioned from swords to making tools. A lot of the tools you make for boat building are made from wood as well as metal. Is that right? Uh, well, we, we I use a lot of patterns that I that I make from wood, um, <clears throat> but yeah, the principal tools in boat building. The, there are really two specialty tools in boat building that would not be seen in temple carpentry or other carpentry. There's a special type of handsaw that's used by boat builders only, and those have become difficult to source, but are still available. And there are some, you can rework uh, a Japanese hand, a conventional handsaw to do the same work. Uh, and the other is a specialty chisel used to pilot the, the nail holes because boat builders use a special handmade nail uh, in building boats. And, you know, it's this is interesting talking about revival and response to you know, the loss of craft. Um, 10 years ago, there was, there. I only knew of one blacksmith who was making Japanese boat nails. And uh, just on this trip, I heard about another blacksmith who, yet another blacksmith who is prepared to make boat nails for people. And now, I mean, at this point, that's bounced back. I mean, I, I have a list of about half a dozen blacksmiths who will make Japanese boat nails. And so, you know, that's that's part of that crisis in the craft. You you not only lose the the direct practitioners of the craft, but you lose the craftspeople who make the things, the tools that support the craft, or you lose the suppliers of the materials to support the craft. So in, you know, in the terms of the blacksmithing, um, you know, that that's a that's a good that's a happy ending that there are now more blacksmiths for me to turn to for boat nails. Um, the tool world, I think, is pretty healthy, you know, and it's really fueled by overseas customers. So your interview with an Australian is is um, particularly prescient. Um, it is it is uh, people around the world have discovered the high quality of Japanese tools. And it's if you talk to a Japanese blacksmith you know, they will tell you that their their work and their livelihood is absolutely dependent on their export market, you know. Wow. So uh, it has really brought toolmakers back. Yeah. That is really interesting. It is and interesting. It shows uh, also for boat making, I think it shows the power of the import market, in, including tourism, and how mm. the interest of the mm. inbound market for tourism, as well as the export market of products, um, can really aid in preserving these traditions and culture, right? Well, yes. And in fact, in Japan, uh, so the boats I'm building right now, six... 30 foot, 32 foot boats. I'm building these for a whitewater tourism company in uh, in Kumamoto, in Kyushu, on Kyushu Island. And it is a, a downriver boat trip on the Kumagawa, the Kuma River um, in Kumamoto. And if 
if a revival in wooden boat building were to be sustained in this country, I am absolutely convinced it would be in supplying boats for the tourist industry because I, I, I think I'm right in saying this. I think there are more traditional wooden boats used in tourism in Japan perhaps than in any other country in the world. And what's scary to me right now is that so many of these tourist companies, the boat builder they depended on has passed away or has retired. And, and the danger is that they will switch to plastic boats, you know, because they can't find a source. And I'm currently building six new boats for one tourist company. Um, in 2019, when I was here on an apprentice research project, right before COVID, I had four different tourist companies contact me to ask me about building them boats. And this, this project is the result of one of those four meetings. So uh, that, that both frightens me that, that people might give up and turn to plastic fiberglass boats, but it also excites me obviously because there could be potential, you know, more boat building projects, but really the, the tourist industry will be the first source for traditional wooden boats. And it's a big market here. You know, it could sustain, it could sustain many craftspeople for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, so many of the boats uh, that I see, like you did with uh, projects like this one in Kobe, mm. yeah. uh, building this boat, uh, there is a beautiful garden in Hiroshima called Shukian Zen Gardens. Mm -hmm. And the gardeners use traditional wooden boats to trim the beautiful pine trees, like giant bonsai, yeah. uh, from their boats in the middle pond. And it's just wonderful to see. Of course, because it's a traditional wooden <clears throat> boat, it's such a beautiful garden. They're not disturbing the serenity of everyone who comes because it's so quiet and beautiful. And it's just, I, I'm sure, in terms of tourism, we've got a lot of demand. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about your apprentice style, how you learned uh, just by observation without yeah. talking and you're passing on that same style of boat building to your students, right? Right. So, so one of the, well, the first and biggest, <clears throat> excuse me, the first and biggest shock to me um, in, in apprenticing with Japanese craftsmen was when this man when the first day of our apprenticeship to build a tub boat together, he told me that there would be absolutely no speaking in the workshop. And he was true to that. He did not utter a word to me except, you know, a very, very curt command, you know, clean, work, fetch, sharpen, and so on. And that, that was true throughout all my apprenticeships. My teachers did, there was no speaking while we were working. Um, and of course, that's a shock to a foreigner where we're so used to an educational style where there's this constant give and take, uh, uh, verbal give and take between the teacher and the student and direct instruction, you know, do it this way and this is how you do it and so on. In Japan and within the Japanese apprentice model of learning, the apprentice is expected to learn through observation only. And... Uh, it is, again, it is a difficult thing initially to wrap your head around. But over the years, you know, I've come to really embrace, uh, I think, the power of that style of learning. And I feel like I've personally experienced the power of that kind of learning. And so 
Many years later, I've developed both a college university class uh, on apprentice learning in which a group of students builds a traditional Japanese riverboat and also a workshop, a, a one week workshop for craft schools and boat building schools and maritime museums and so on, where, where a group of students builds uh, a boat together. We build a boat together. And I have tried to incorporate as much as I can this idea of the silent workshop. Um, there are obviously rules I need to break around that. It can, I, I can't have the strictly silent workshop that I experienced, uh, but I try to get as close to that as I can. And uh, it's very interesting to see my students' responses to that. Uh, I think there's an, there is initially, like for me, there's initially trepidation. How can we do this? Um, and but by the end, universally, I see my students embrace it. And the comment that I get most is, I thought I knew what it meant to focus, and I had no idea what really what focus focusing meant. And um, <clears throat> so interesting conversations outside of the workshop can happen around this learning method. And I'll, I'll just point out the other advantage to this learning method was I came into my first few apprenticeships basically speaking little or no Japanese. I mean, my Japanese skills were slowly advancing. Um, <clears throat> and the irony is I didn't need language. My teachers were not going to be telling me how to do things. Um, and so, you know, ironically, I, I could come in without speaking Japanese and jump right into the apprenticeship because um, language was not one of the tools of that learning method. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, there is some sounds though, right? <laughs> like right. like you've had some masters that have taught you certain rhythms like percussion and then others who say, we don't do that. Right. Uh, there seems to be a, a rift between some carpenters about that. Is that well, right? yeah, among boat builders there, among some boat builders, yes, there's a, <clears throat> there's a well-known technique uh, it's got a charming name. It's called Uguisu no Tani Watari. And uh, Uguisu is the bush warbler. And that, that fully translates as the bush warbler flies back and forth across the valley. And so you're hearing their song kind of coming and going in a, in a very quick rhythm. And so some boat builders, as they drive a nail, actually use their hammer and nail set to play a rhythm. And... Um, they give various reasons for why they do that. And then boat builders who do not practice this technique sort of describe it as, you know, it's, it's just something silly and not worth doing. Um, I was fortunate that three, yeah, I think three of my boat builders uh, would play a rhythm while nailing. And interestingly, they, they would insist I do so as well. But interestingly, all three of them said the same thing. And that was, I was not to copy their rhythm. I had to develop my own rhythm. And this, this points to another interesting element of the apprentice system um, where the apprentice is absolutely subservient to the master and yet there's an expectation that the apprentice will go beyond the master. 
that that's that's a longer story but uh but but yeah it was interesting to be admonished and say no you can't play my rhythm come up with your own rhythm which is uh, so interesting signature. like when you compare it to taiko like people who who learn and join taiko groups they absolutely have to follow the master and do the same uh, rhythm but they were insisting that you create your own rhythm i love that yeah yeah was yeah, it, it is. To... It's a very, it's a very endearing uh, technique. Um, it's, I, I, you know, quite frankly, I, none of my teachers would agree with this, but I honestly think they did it because it was fun, and it just it created some enjoyment in the workshop. In fact, one of my teacher's yeah. wives told me that when she said when husband was nailing a boat, the neighbors would come to gather and listen. And That's he was so that nice. good. I mean, he he was a musician. Honestly. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Is this something you teach to your students when you do the workshops as well? Yes. Yeah, I do it. I do it in my own boat building some of the time, most of the time. And uh, yes, I do. I introduce it to my students and I invite them to to try it. And everybody enjoys it. It does, you know, it does, it does make a, a hard day of work go a little bit easier. So um, that that's, that's why I'm sticking to that theory. Yeah, well, it's, it's lovely. And it, it shows, I think, the diversity of, mm. of the boat building world uh, coming from Japan. And I think your, your experience all across mm. Japan has certainly shown that as well, that you have so many different styles. Uh, yes. One that really struck out uh, to me was in Okinawa mm. and all of these beautiful uh, bow tie fittings. Mm. So instead of nails, uh, using these wooden bow tie fittings, is that right? Yes. The key? Yes. Um, so bow tie, that's a good, <laughs> that's not how they're described in Japan. But um, so yes, Okinawa, I was very eager to study with an Okinawan boat builder. And at the time I apprenticed, there were only three left, all elderly men. Um, and now this Okinawa is a wonderful place because it's really the only place that's seen a real revival in wooden boat building. And it's because young people discovered the traditional fishing boat called a Sabani and started racing them. So they turned a fishing boat into a pleasure boat. And now I'm happy to say that there are a number of new young craftspeople, including Japan's first woman professional boat builder. And she's actually leading the way. She's She was apprenticing uh, at the same time I was apprenticing. So two of the elderly masters were teaching two apprentices um, in, in about 2009. So anyway, um, in Okinawa, the boats are fastened without any metal nails or screws whatsoever. They're held together entirely with these hardwood dovetail keys. And if you're, if you have any knowledge of furniture making, you may have seen hardwood dovetail keys used in furniture work, but in Japan, it was used in boat building. Um, not just most extensively in Okinawa, but I have discovered uh, this kind of fastening used among river boat builders along the Sea of Japan. So it was used in a, in a smattering of places along the Sea of Japan, but most extensively in, in Okinawa. And yeah, they're uh, beautiful to see. It's yeah. Gorgeous. And they're called, you and call them, right. bo 
you I call them both in ties. Like tables. And I see yeah. it in uh, tables and chairs and carpentry, even in houses. Yeah. But I've never seen it in boats before, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Oh, no, it's a great, it's a great fastening. And there, the, the Okinawan word is uh, hundu. And nobody's quite traced the, the etymology of that word, uh, hundu. Um, but elsewhere in Japan, they're called chigiri, which is a corruption of a, a verb to put something together. And they're called suzumi. And the suzumi is a, a little two-headed drum. Which, so the, the fastening sort of re resembles the tiny uh, two-headed drum. But in the West, we call them butterfly keys. Um, bow tie, you've invented a new <laughs> charming name. Uh, anyway, so dovetail keys is probably the most common English phrase wow. for those. So yeah. the drum, I wonder if that's the drum that you twist and it hits with... Yeah, uh, yes. Back, uh, back and forth, like a swinging paddle kind of thing. Little yes, I think we're talking about the same drum. Oh, yes. nice. Yeah, it has that shape. Doesn't yeah, it? it has that shape. Yep. That's wonderful. Right. Um, now, when you finish a boat, you have a little ceremony before you launch it. Can you tell us about this? It's interesting. Yeah, so all ceremonies around boat building are Shinto-based. So Japan, there are really two religions uh, here, uh, Buddhism and Shintoism, which, which coexist. And, uh, but everything related to boat building is Shinto based. And so this is a launching, I'm on the right with an uh, apprentice I brought from the United States. Uh, and our teacher, actually, there was no priest involved. And most boat launching ceremonies, you know, small fishing boats in, in little fishing village communities, the, actually the boat builder can conduct the ceremony. You don't have to have a priest. And so the motifs on the boat is essentially the setting up of a Shinto altar. Um, there, are, uh, there are some standard... Um, standard parts of that ceremony that run throughout Japan, but largely the ceremonies, and I find them very interesting, they have a very local flavor. Um, so there are commonalities that, that you can see wherever you go in Japan. Um, it's, really, it's really interesting to hear about local, uh, uh, local traditions that are part of the ceremony. And the only other ceremony in boat building, there is a keel laying ceremony like we have in the West, uh, kind of a, a ceremony to kick off the boat building project. Most of my teachers didn't do that. I, I've seen it a few times and I, I, I conduct it in my courses, but um, almost all my teachers had some kind of a launching ceremony. Yeah. Wow, it's interesting. And uh, you you mentioned about the salt and the sake yeah. um, that, of course, are used in many Shinto ceremonies yes. as a purification. Any big right. ceremony starts with sake, salt, and usually an evergreen, like yes. a camellia leaf or something. Right. Um, that's uh, What you're doing is just so important. I think passing on the culture and the legacy and the know-how uh, to future generations, not just in Japan, but around the world and keeping these traditions alive. I think it's really exciting. One, one of the examples you gave of, uh, I think, outside Tokyo area, mm. uh, how this picture is from the 1960s and so many wooden boats. And then within a short time span, uh, pretty much all disappeared and the whole uh, area changed uh, whole, because yeah. of pollution and 
and losing that whole boat building culture in that area is so sad. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That. It, yes. And that was Urayasu, which is the city in Chiba Prefecture, just over the eastern border of Tokyo. And I invite um, anyone who's in the Tokyo area. Uh, the Urayasu Kyodo Hakubutsukan, the the folk culture museum in Urayasu, is an excellent museum, and it's, you know, that was such a maritime culture. That photograph, there, when that photograph was taken, there were seventeen hundred registered fishing boats in that community, uh, all made of wood, and that that picture was taken in nineteen sixty four. That's ten kilometers from downtown Tokyo. And that picture was taken within my lifetime. I mean, when I first saw that photo, I thought, what is that from the 1890s? Uh, it's amazing. And yes, pollution destroyed the fishing grounds and that whole culture disappeared almost overnight. Um, and my teacher in Urayasu, in the museum, which created a museum boat shop, uh, he was one of the last boat builders from that that community. But that's an excellent museum preserving um, that maritime culture. Yeah. I'd love to visit. And yeah. because, uh, like you you say, uh, you ask many masters to work with them, and for years they turn you away, and then eventually they invite you to work with them, and then sometimes they pass on with you being one of only a few apprentices. And so then you are asked to teach their yeah. Uh, techniques. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So yeah, in the case of the tub boat, I was my my master's only apprentice and he died um, three years after my apprenticeship with him. And uh, it, you know, it created a crisis. People on the island, Sato Island said, well, what do we do now? And, and they reached out to me. And what I said in response was, we're going to do the traditional thing, and I'm going to teach an apprentice. And you just showed a photo of me with a local house carpenter whom I trained. He and I built two tub boats together. And then I said, we're going to do the Western thing and you're going to publish my book. And that was my first book, which is nothing more than a how-to book, how to build tub boats um, with some, you know, some discussion of the history and culture around those boats. You know, and so that's... Um, you know, I'm reaching a point now where I feel very strongly there there are very few craftspeople left to apprentice with, um, and I feel myself pivoting toward teaching and publishing, but also, I'll say it, it's kind of a dream, uh, somehow creating a training program in Japan. I, As much as I admire the apprentice system, it's, it is admittedly very inefficient. You know, um, and there's and who are you going to find and how can you support, you know, a multi-year apprenticeship for for a craftsperson? And I and I and I, I keep coming back to what what really brought about the revival of wooden boat building in Europe and North America and Australia and New Zealand. And that's the establishment of a boat building school. And I really I really think if the craft is to be saved in Japan, I think that's what has to happen, is to create an institution in some form or another that can provide the resources for people to 
learn traditional boat building. So yeah, um, well, that's, that's really important and really exciting. And anybody interested in helping out, please reach out to Douglas. Yeah, please uh, reach let's out get to some funding and, uh, and a yeah. studio together. Because one of the interesting things you talk about is how the room where you build the boat is actually used in many ways uh, to exactly. hang things or balance things. Um, so it really needs to be a specially made studio for boat building. Is that right? Yeah. So this is a great shot. This is inside the Ureasu Museum, but uh, um, where they actually built the framework of a boat shop. And so in Japanese boat building, like most crafts, it's practiced right on the floor. There are no workbenches. You work on low sawhorses and, and there's, there's almost no use of clamps. And so everything is propped. You can even see a prop off to the sidewall. Well, there's one in the foreground and one, one in the background. Um, and so you have this forest of props holding everything in place. And so the shop itself becomes a very important tool because there has to be very strong overhead beams to support uh, to support the work and support these props. Yeah, it's very, it's very interesting how the shop itself is, is one of the crucial tools in boat building. Ah, it's fascinating. And mm. so when you do your workshops in America, too, you have to find a suitable I have to set room. something like that up. Is yeah. that hard? Uh, sometimes. <laughs> so, yeah, I sometimes. One of, one of your, maybe at Harvard, you had to build a frame first. Correct. To have that ability to, to balance right. things, right? We had to build a framework. I've had to do that several times in several different venues. Yes. Because yeah. I was I was watching the time lapse going, what are they doing? It looks yeah. like a giant picture frame. That's yeah, exactly two, what we it had was. two of those picture frames, correct. And that's what we propped against. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now the the whole concept of waterproofing without caulking yeah. is really interesting. Can you explain yeah. that a little bit? Yeah. So every every watertight seam in a traditional Japanese boat is created with the special boat building saws that I mentioned before. And here's my teacher in Tokyo where the two planks that you're going to nail together are held on the floor with the props. And my teacher is carefully sawing down the seam. So he's sawing between the two planks. And this process is repeated over and over and over again. And after each pass with the boat building saw, the planks are tapped together a little bit more and then it's repeated again and if you think about it that that essentially resolves the fit that that creates a perfect fit and it's true in japanese boat building there's there's little or no caulking used and and boats are expected to be watertight upon launch so this is a big big difference between western boat building and japanese boat building and, and was a crucial, is a crucial technique to learn. Uh, was, it, was it really difficult to learn? Is it, it is very difficult. It, no, it's very difficult. And uh, it's doable. My students do it. But yes, it's, it's, um, it's very difficult. Though my students' boats always leak. Uh, and I have no problem with that because everybody needs a dose of humility. So that's a, that's a nice feature at the, the end of the class. <laughs> Now, which was more difficult, making this waterproof uh, with the, the, the cutting technique. it or the bamboo strap for the tub boat? Oh, boy. Well, you, uh, <laughs> you're kind of apples and oranges. I, I'm not, <laughs> I, I don't think I'll give a direct answer. I mean, I think, but what I think is true of all of it is 
the pressure put on the apprentice to master these techniques and, you know, really not giving any way out. And, and what I like to tell my students in, in outside of Japan and also within Japan is this apprentice mode of learning. The teacher refuses to teach, but the apprentice is required to learn. And there, right there, I think encapsulates the ways in which this apprentice style of training kind of turns so many notions we have about learning on its head. We in the West, we would, we would think, well, I can always turn to the teacher to save me. And in Japan, there's no salvation. The teacher will not save you. And I remember the first hoop I was asked to braid, I was struggling with it. My teacher started the hoop and gave it to me and walked away, literally walked away. And he was braiding that hoop. And he saw me struggling. And I saw him shake his head in frustration. And he got up from where he was working, came over to me, picked up my hoop, saw where I'd made a mistake in the braid, unbraided my hoop back to a point before the mistake, dropped it in my lap and walked away. Not a word. And, you know, uh, I hope everybody can appreciate the, the, the pressure was on me to get this right. And that, the, the, it's, it's, it's a powerful motivation you know, uh, and, and I, I just, I just come out of that and I reflect back upon my apprenticeships and just, you know, it, it was really life-changing for me to be taught that way. And it's, it's what I try to introduce my students to in my classes and workshops. Yeah. It's a, it's a powerful teaching tool and yeah. maybe a way to get that fire going. But oh. also, there must be some apprentices that just give up. It's just overwhelming, yeah. right? Right. Well, yes, yes, certainly, yes, that's true. Um, and, and yet, you know, there's simply a belief in the craft that, it, you know, it's this is another truism of that craft. Um, and we don't think about this in the West. There's a moral component. The 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 apprentice. It, it, it's really a values-based education where the first step is that the apprentice has to develop the values, obedience, perseverance, powers of observation, concentration, humility. All those things have to be present or they won't succeed. And so when, you know, when you talk to a craftsperson and, and they say, like many craftspeople will tell you, yeah, the first two years of my apprenticeship, all I did was sweep. All I did was fetch. All I did was, you know, bring my master lunch. Um, those are not, that's not wasted time because that apprentice throughout, you know, what we consider drudge, drudge, drudgery, the apprentice is expected to be watching and learning every single moment. And so when they're called upon to do the work, they're expected to do it and do it perfectly. And so, um, yeah, so it's a very, you know, it's a very interesting process in terms of the expectations on the apprentice 
when they walk into the workshop. And that's that's not something I was ever used to in in my all of my education in the West. Yeah, I, I'm sure a lot of Americans or, or people around the world can uh, get a taste of this just from Karate Kid, right? The, well, the yeah, wax on, wax off yeah. and doing all the chores and not understanding what he's doing and then right. it, it coming and him understanding it later, right? Is right. that the same kind of process you go through? Right. And, you know, when I when I work in the West and teach in the West, it's alluding to martial arts training and sports is a way in which I get students to realize, you know, this isn't that foreign to any of you. You know, you have had moments in your life where you've you've tasted this kind of learning. And yeah, I, I've never seen any of the Karate Kid movies, but absolutely martial arts and sports and uh, you know other things in life. People people who grew up on a farm and 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 learned something about, you know, just sort of learned in that slow methodical way, learned a particular thing or you know learned how to knit with their grandmother or so on. Um, there are those, there are those kinds of learning in our lives. And we, and, you know, people then remember that. Uh, but in, in Japanese crafts and really apprenticeship, I think around the world, um, this is standard. This is the standard way of learning. So, yeah. Well, we have just a few more minutes. Uh, you mentioned about your dream of opening a school of yeah. boat building, Japanese wooden boat building. That would be amazing to see happen in Japan or anywhere around the world. Uh, what else is coming up for you this year? Uh, so, uh, well, this I'll be back in Japan next fall to build the final two boats in this contract. And um, if we're wrapping up, uh, if, if I don't know if you can share with people my, um, my social media addresses, um, I've been posting quite a lot on Instagram about this particular project. So look at my last few Instagram posts to see what I'm doing here. Um, I'm actually, uh, three days after I get home, I go to Nova Scotia, with two other boat builders, and we're documenting the work of the last dory builder in Shelburne, Nova Scotia. He's a fifth generation boat builder, uh, and he works without plans, all from memory. It's very, very reminiscent of what I'm what I've done here. And actually, I was included, invited into this project because of my experience documenting boat builders here. So I'm going to Nova Scotia. Finally, get home. Um, I have a boat to finish in my workshop. I have a manuscript to write um, on uh, a, one of my apprenticeships here in Japan. I'm working with my publisher on a, a new book. It'll be my sixth book on traditional Japanese boat building. Uh, what else? I don't know. My head's spinning. Sorry. <laughs> I've got a workshop. No, I'm teaching, it's so exciting. I'm, I'm teaching a Japanese boat building workshop at uh, the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum in St. Michael's, Maryland in the fall. So go to their website and check that out if you're interested. And so, I'll, I'll put yeah. your link tree and all your links below. So uh, hopefully we can keep up with all these exciting events and activities yeah. and workshops that you're doing. And awesome. also keep anybody, please reach out to me. Uh, I can send videos of boat builders doing rhythmic nailing. Um, anything that, that, that you heard this morning that interests you, I'm more than happy to try to answer any questions via email. So don't, don't be afraid to reach out.
Thank you so much. And um, I actually, I was interested in ordering your book, but you said it's really prohibitive to mail it to Japan. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, the book. Yeah. Unfortunately, my book, Japanese Wooden Boat Building, U.S. postal rates overseas, it's $50 to mail the book. And that's the retail price. Is that the retail price? Yeah, that's the retail price. So unfortunately, if you're overseas, you should probably just go to Amazon, my frenemy, as they say. And uh, but within the United States, please purchase from the author. It's the only way to get a signed copy. And that way your book is priceless. Wonderful. And so, the, the tub boats um, book, is that available? The tub boat book is available from me as well. Although essentially the text of that book is within my big book, Japanese Wooden Boat Building, which is about my first five apprenticeships in Japan. So if you buy Japanese Wooden Boat Building, you, you essentially get the text of the tubboat book in, in that volume. Yeah. Have you ever thought about buying a house in Japan and being here permanently? Well, I have, and I'm, I've been living in this tiny village, which is full of abandoned houses. And I... Yeah, it's pretty mouthwatering. Um, I I would seriously, if I found the perfect location and the perfect house, um, yeah, I really, I probably wouldn't hesitate to buy a house, a, a 90 year old fisherman's house sold in this village for $23,000 US and all the, to somebody in Tokyo and all the local people are aghast saying he paid over twice what he should have paid. <laughs> So, you know, for yeah. $10,000, you could buy yourself a pretty magnificent house someplace in Japan. If and, you as, find and as a carpenter, you yeah. you would be able to fix it up to your yeah, liking presumably, as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would think so. What a wonderful project. But you've got too much to do till then. Yeah. Thank you for being a bridge between the outside world and these hidden secrets in Japan. I, I really value all the work that you're doing and you're going to... You your documentation is really valuable for future generations and the culture and preservation of boat building. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. These are great questions and a great pair of eyeglasses. Wooden. Wooden. <laughs> Good yes. for you. Thanks so much, Douglas. Thanks All everyone right. for joining and okay. uh, see you again next time. Take care. Right. Bye. You all seem like such nice people Does anyone know what we're doing here? Some of us seem content carrying on Some of us are hell-bent on making ourselves clear You all seem like such nice people. Has anyone seen?